I noticed when I did my scripture reading that we have a slight imbalance today. <laughs> if you look at this side, we're kind of light. But if you look at this side, you guys are doing great. You're filled out. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Things uh, ebb and flow with attendance. We're continuing our study in 1 Peter. This week we'll be beginning chapter 4. 1 Peter is, uh, I've been finding as I've been studying, there's a lot of, uh, I don't know how to say, chewing that has to go on as I work through 1 Peter, where I'm, I'm reading and then I'm digesting and I, I'm thinking and just, his writing style, it, it takes me a while to grasp sometimes what exactly he means. But we have the benefit of having other scriptures that we can compare to and contrast with and to help us to get a glean a greater understanding of what Peter meant as he wrote. But this week we are in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Go ahead and read those. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. As a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Lord, as we approach this text, help me to explain clearly what is here. Uh, help your spirit to, to work through me as we study this. We thank you for your word and the many truths contained therein. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we study this, it's, it's good to remember when we study scripture that the chapter and the verse numbers and the headings that you see in your Bible are not original to the text. They're not part of that Holy Spirit-inspired text. So we have chapter 4, beginning with a therefore statement. This sort of begins with a conclusion, right? Um, so that's, that's not necessarily how Peter wrote it with a break in there. But it does help us as we reference our Bibles to be able to find things better and to move from one sort of thought of the author into a next thought. But this verse 1 of chapter 4 begins with a therefore statement, a statement of conclusion. And this is a good reminder to always, when you're reading your scriptures, to read them in context. Go back and see what came before. What is he talking about? What is he, what is he making a conclusion from? <clears throat> So yeah, he starts with this statement of therefore, it's like saying in conclusion or because of this. And he even does us a favor where he summarizes some of that previous statement 
or his argument in this text where he says, since Christ suffered in his body, right? So because Christ suffered in his body, this, if we look back at chapter 3, verses 17 and 18, it says there, it is better if, if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. He was put to death in the body, but made alive by the Spirit. So since Christ suffered in his body, because of this, because of Christ's suffering, because of Christ dying for sins, what are you to do? You are to arm yourselves also with the same attitude. So Christ died for sins. It was this, a single event, and it was sufficient. It was enough. And because of this, we can have patience in the midst of suffering for the cause of Christ. We can endure persecution because we have Christ as an example to look, look to. That is what he's pointing us to Christ. Arm yourselves with that same attitude. Be imitators of Christ. Follow his example. Imitate the endurance of Christ, the perseverance of Christ in regards to suffering, punishment, for sins, right? Christ died for sins, took the punishment for sins, having done nothing to deserve that, but he took that for you. Now apply that same endurance, that same perseverance to killing sin in your own life, right? He says, Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude because he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. In the same way that Christ suffered for you, now you suffer for him. Endure in the same manner as Christ, with humility, patience, and willingness. And that statement where he says, he who has suffered in his body is done with sin. There's several things Peter says in here that if you just do like a quick surface level reading of it, you can come up with some interesting conclusions. And this is, this is one of those. Right, Peter is not making an argument for sinless perfectionism. He's not saying that once you come to Christ, you are now, sin is no more in your life, right? He's not saying that you will cease to sin, and which is what he says <laughs> in some of the, I think it's ESV, he says, he who has suffered in his body ceases to sin, right? But he says, you're done with sin. But you are now, believers, are now in a process of sanctification. It is a lifelong process. You are becoming more like Christ. You are sinning less. Um, the word that is translated here as where it says, is done with sin, means to cease doing something or to stop oneself. But to gain a little bit of context of this and in Luke chapter 11, verse 1, is that that same word is used. And there it says, One day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he was finished, one of the, his disciples said to him. So it says there that he was finished praying. So was Jesus done with prayer for all time at that point? No, he finished it at that point. He, he completed what he was doing then. But he, he will go and pray again. 
Peter talks about this in a previous section in, in chapter 2, verse 24. He says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. So there's this idea of dying to sin and living for righteousness. That your life is changed. There, there's like a before and an after of coming to Christ. I think Paul in Romans does like, he paints a good picture of this whole relationship. And it's a long section. Uh, it's like Romans 5 verse 12 through 8 verse 11 is this long section about the relationship of the believer and sin that happens. But specifically in Romans 6 verses 17 and 18, I think gives us a good explanation that we can tie into what Peter talks about here that helps us to understand what he means. But Romans 6, 17 and 18 says, but thanks be to God that though you used to be slaves to sin, you wholeheartedly obeyed the form of teaching to which you were entrusted you have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. It's this picture of a realignment of your relationship to sin, this going from being a slave to sin to now being a slave to righteousness. You have changed masters. So Christians are no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. That's what Peter is trying to, to tell us here. Because Christ has suffered in his body, you're done with sin. Your allegiances have changed. And it doesn't mean that you will no longer sin. It is an ongoing process and it will never be finished until you are reunited with the Lord. So when we identify with Christ and his suffering, we make a break with sin. There is this willingness to suffer for the faith. It's Peter's been talking about persecution in this in chapter three of enduring hardship for the Lord. This willingness to suffer for the faith, for your convictions, it becomes a, a galvanizing thing. It becomes almost empowering to suffer for the Lord. Um, you you see that as if you get the voice of the martyrs' new newsletters and you see all these different believers around the world who are suffering and say, how do you continue to endure this? And that's, their faith is in Christ. They do it for the Lord. And it's, it's always interesting when they use, uh, how can we pray for you, right? And they say, well, don't pray that our suffering ends. Pray that we will continue to honor Christ in the midst of suffering. And to even take this thought a little further, it's in the event that a Christian does suffer unto death for the believer, death results in complete and total freedom from sin. Right? When you think the worst thing they could possibly do to you is to kill you, well, the result for the believer when they die is now there with the Lord and they are no longer under the burden of sin. That is not the worst thing they could do to you. So, as believers, we should not be looking for the easy way out of suffering, persecution, right? You're not always, when hardship comes, you're not 
shouldn't be looking for the first off-ramp, the easiest way out. You're looking, how do, I, how do I serve the Lord in the midst of this? A life committed to ease and pleasure does not lead us closer to the Lord. Um, it is more likely to lead into sin. Rather, we should be seeking to imitate Christ, to endure persecution, even if it is unto death. And it's interesting as we talk through Peter, and he's, he's talking a lot about persecution, and I don't know how many... I can't think of anybody in here right offhand that can say, like, I've gotten 30 lashes for Christ. Right? We, we don't see that persecution in the same way that they did. We don't... We live in America, a nation that's been, been shaped by, by men who were believers when they founded this country, and you see the fruit and results of that. So we don't see that immediate persecution, but you can see how things are not the same as they used to be, right? The world around you no longer pursues God. The, the, the people who would call themselves Christians who maybe our cultural Christians are becoming less and less, right? The, this world that's been influenced by God is, is changing. So don't be surprised if maybe you will not endure persecution in that same way, but maybe your children will see it more. Maybe your grandchildren will. But we should be seeking to imitate Christ in the midst of these difficulties And he says in verse 2, the one thing that I noticed studying through uh, this particular section of Peter, but I was thinking about it as I was, is that Peter just builds one argument off of another. There's other, other scriptures you read, and each verse has, like, has its own point. And Peter, he's just, there, there's a lot of therefores, there's... Uh, there's Verse 2 begins with, as a result. So you always have to be looking back in Peter, always looking back. What did he say previous? What, what do we have now? But he starts verse 2 with, uh, as a result. He does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. So that helps us to better understand what is meant by Peter in verse 1. So as a result, of being done with sin. You no longer live the rest of your earthly life for evil human desires. There is a change that occurs. It is rather for the will of God. The result and outcome of this new attitude is that the believer should no longer be characterized by a pursuit of the temporary pleasures offered by sin. There is a change. There should be a radical change in the life of the believer. They go from pursuits which please themselves to pursuits which please the Lord. Right? It says, you do not live the rest of your earth, his earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. You are now seeking to please the Lord rather than to please yourself. So just like that, those verses in Romans said, believers go from being slaves to sin to being slaves to righteousness you are no longer in that pursuit of sin. It is no longer the thing that, that holds you, that controls you. It is now pursuit of righteousness and pursuit of Christ. Verse 
and suffering persecution, as Peter's been talking about, for the Lord gives a renewed focus. It gives a change of priorities. In verse 14 of chapter 3, he's, this comes after, in verse 13, he says, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? That's after that whole section in verse 8 of chapter 3 and up where he gives all these characteristics of how believers should be and then talks about the blessings that can be expected. And he caps that by saying, who is going to harm you if you are eager to do good? Right? Look at all these good things that should happen. But then he goes into a section on, but even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. And do not fear what they fear. Do not be frightened. It gives a renewed focus. It gives a change of priorities, right? Even if you should suffer, you are blessed. There is good that comes from it. And in that, in verse two there of chapter four, he talks about, he says, as a result, he does not live the rest of his earthly life for evil human desires, right? There's life becomes different. And this concept of you have only one life, whether it is long by our standards or short by our standards, right? And do not waste it on sin, which produces death. Right? Looking at your life, there should be a contrast, a difference in the time before you came to Christ and after. A time of living for evil human desires and a time of living for the will of God. It's what Peter is pointing us to here, this, this change that happens coming to Christ. He continues on in verse 3 and says, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. He's, that phrase begins with this, For you have spent enough time. And I was thinking about that and thinking, like, this reminds me in some ways of, like, I come home and my kids are just being crazy. They have The thing that they do that just drives us nuts is they like to pull the cushions off the sofa, throw them on the floor, bury them in toys and blankets, and then cover the remaining sofa with more toys, random coins, just like, it's just this disaster of craziness. And I'm like, I'm coming home from work. I'm like, I don't want to spend the next 10 minutes like reorganizing our living room, right? As I said, but my response to them when I see this is usually like, that's enough, right? Stop it. This ends now. Or we will have no more of this. Like, knock it off. And we're, this is coming to an end. You can't do this anymore. Right? This, this phrase of Paul of, for you have spent enough time in the past. Right? End it. He's not saying they've achieved a goal of sinful living. Right? Hey, you spent enough time. You met your quota. You've done your sins for, for your sinful life. And good job. He's saying, no, knock it off. Quit it. Right? I'm not congratulating my kids on destroying our living room. <laughs> I'm saying, knock it off. 
This ends now. That's what Paul is saying. You've spent enough time doing this. Move on from it. Be done with it. See, Christians should live differently than the rest of the world. And it's no longer living the indulgent lifestyle for evil human desires, rather living in the spirit with a desire to glorify God. And reemphasizing that passage in, in Romans that Paul wrote, we're no longer slaves to sin, but slaves to righteousness. There should be a change. And thinking upon that list of different sins there, I'm not going to do my typical, like, give you all the definitions for everything that I like to do. Um, But these sins were typical of that time that he's writing. They were common practice for pagans living in the Roman world. It would, honestly, it would characterize the pagan world of Peter's day. Back to, to Romans chapter 13. It's, these things were not unique to Peter's audience. Romans 13, verses 13 and 14, he writes, Let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Some of those things should sound familiar. That's a lot of the things Peter mentioned. But Paul here says, Rather close yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ, and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the sinful nature. So, all things that were common in their day. And the, the irony is, uh, even now, 2,000 years later, uh, many of these same sins are still in common practice. Right? This passage, this message, maintains its relevancy even now, 2,000 years later. People don't usually come up with a lot of new and original ways to sin. There's a lot of tried and true ways that they've been doing for a long time. But do note in that verse 3, he says he's speaking to them in the past tense. So this is no longer an appropriate description of a believer that is in right standing. He says you have, you have spent enough time. So part of this is sin in a believer results should result in a burden that afflicts them rather than a pleasure that delights them. Sure, there is, can still be that, that immediate sense of pleasure from sin that is still there. But ultimately, there should be a conviction of conscience that happens as a result of sin that occurs. There should be a burden on them as, a, as an effect of sin still. And I was thinking to, to summarize verses 2 and 3 of this passage would sound something like, do not waste the years of your life in sin. Time spent doing the will of God is never wasted. This thought that like as you lay on your deathbed, you're probably not going to look back on your life and say to yourself, I wish I had spent more time in sin. Rather, the believer should look back on the time of their life 
that was wasted on sin and wish that they could redeem it, wish that they could have that back so they could have had more time to serve the Lord. That is the, the proper attitude that we should have as believers. We, we should be hating sin and wishing that that hadn't happened, right? You're not, not desiring to have spent more time in sin. But he continues on in verse 4 saying, They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. So that verse begins with uh, the statement of they. Like, so well, who are they? All right, this is the, the same they that were mentioned in verse 3. Spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. So those that you used to do all these things with, your, your friends, that you liked to sin with, right? They think it's strange that you don't do these things anymore. And not only do they think it's strange, but they heap abuse on you. So this verse gives us, tells us what is to be expected for a reaction from those who you used to spend time sinning with. You should expect them to be confused. They are probably not going to understand the change. You can expect abuse. You can expect slander. And many of you are familiar with this. You've been there. You have, your lives are changed and you have received abuse and slander because of changes you've made in your life to stop sinning. And verse 16 of chapter 3 of Peter, he, he again talks about this. He says, he says, in regards to giving an offense, he says, do it with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. So those who speak maliciously against good behavior, right? Like, what sense does that make? It is good behavior, and you're receiving malicious speak for it. But it says that they may be ashamed of their slander. They ha there has to be slander involved. It, abuse and slander. A misrepresentation. So, those who don't know the Lord don't understand the transformation that happens in the life of the believer. So, such a change doesn't make sense. The things that we used to do that we thought were so much fun... You're not doing them anymore. Like, why don't you want to have fun, right? It doesn't make sense. And then it causes them to react against that. So these changes may displease old friends. They may wonder why you don't want to have fun. Your old friends who are living to fulfill their, their evil, sinful desires, as Peter says, are likely to feel threatened or judged by new and unusual actions of those who live differently. Why are you different? And when you take a stand against sin, do not expect to receive applause from those who are participating in sin. Right? You'll, rather, you can expect to be slandered, you can expect to be cursed at, and you can expect to be maligned. And part of that is when you refuse to participate in the same sinful practices that they enjoy so much, it causes 
sinners to feel conviction for their sin. There's, uh, it's obvious that there is something that they are doing that is wrong. And maybe there will be repentance because of that. Maybe your change in heart will cause them to question and wonder. But it's also possible that they will become angry. They will not like that you have changed, and they will not like that they don't feel good about it, that they feel a conviction for the wrong things that they do. So they think it's strange. In verse 5, he says, But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Right? It can be difficult to, to endure those hard things, especially from people that you once called friends, right? to endure slander from them. Peter sort of gives us the bigger picture, though. He says, They will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Again, the same, the same day is pagans, the unbelievers, those who curse you, those who slander, unless they repent, repent and turn to Christ, will be held accountable for their actions. And so we should remember this when you feel the sting of the insults. There should be mercy shown towards those who insult you for your faith. This is, unless they come to Christ, this is the best it's going to be. When he talks here in, in verse 5, he, where he says, they will have to give account. It's, in a, it's an accounting term. It means to pay back. So those who live in such a way described in the prior verse are racking up a debt that they will never be able to pay. They have to give an account. They have to pay it back. But you are unable to pay it back. And such were all of us before we came to Christ, unable to pay back the debt of sin that we had racked up. The only way to reconcile that debt is through the blood of Jesus Christ. And it is good to keep that in mind. It's easy to read this passage and come up with like uh, believers on this side, non-believers on that side, and it's us against them, right? Well, you were once in the unbelieving camp. It's only because of Christ that you can read this and say, oh, I should live differently. I should have a different attitude. This says they will give an account to him who's ready to judge the living and the dead. So they, they will one day stand before God receive final judgment. And this is not a new concept in, in the book of Peter and through several passages here he's talked about that there will be a day of judgment. In 1 Peter 1 verse 17 there he says, since you call on a father who judges each man's work impartially, live your lives as strangers here in reverent land. Keep in mind that God, God is the judge of all man, and he does it impartially. In chapter 2, again, he says, in verse 12, live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Again, there's this, 
this day coming when there will be a judgment. Lastly, in verse 23 of chapter 2, he says, when they hurled insults at him, this is speaking of Christ, says he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. When Christ endured so much suffering unjustly, he entrusted himself to the Father, the one who judges justly. We should have that same attitude when enduring persecution wrongfully. Second Thessalonians chapter one gives a in in verse six there through ten gives us a good picture of that final judgment. So starting in verse 6 of 2 Thessalonians 1, it says, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the majesty of his power. On the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you, because you believed our testimony to you. This picture of there will be a day of reckoning. Keep that in mind as you endure hardships, as you endure suffering on behalf of Christ. There will be a day when sin will be accounted for, when justice will be served. And that should also be in your mind as you interact with those who are unbelievers, right? This, this mercy should, should season your words as you interact, as you endure difficulty. And in verse 6, this is another seemingly difficult verse if you, you do a quick, quick reading of it. So like the first time I read through this in preparation, I was like, oh, another, another difficult one to explain. But as I studied and thought upon it more and looked at it more, it was like it's, became clear, became easier to understand. But verse 6 says, For this is the reason the gospel was preached, even to those who are now dead so that they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. So this verse begins with a, for this is the reason, right? He's pointing back to the previous verse when he talks about judgment. This is why the gospel is preached even to those who are now dead. So like a quick surface reading of this verse may leave you thinking that the gospel is preached to people after they have died. It's like if you read it real quick, you say, oh, that sounds, that's what it sounds like. But if you slow down and pay more attention to it as you go, you'll see there are some time indicators in this verse where it says the gospel was preached, so it was preached in the past, even to those who are now dead. So I, I think here he is referring to people who heard 
and believed in the gospel and have since died. People who have heard the gospel have received it. They are now dead. So why is Peter talking like this? Why is this somewhat confusing passage here? Again, back to 1 Thessalonians. In chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. This sort of helps tie these two passages together. In 1 Thessalonians 4.13 verse that many of us are very familiar with. It starts out, it says, Brothers, we do not want you to be ignorant about those who fall asleep or to grieve like the rest of men who have no hope. We believe that Jesus died and rose again, and so we believe that God will bring with Jesus those who have fallen asleep in him. According to the Lord's own word, we tell you that we who are still alive, who are left till the coming of the Lord, will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a loud command, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. After that, we who are still alive and are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will be with the Lord forever. Therefore, encourage each other with these words. These passages are addressing like a, a common pagan belief at that time, is what you see here. The, the pagan world that most of these believers came from thought there was no personal accountability after death. That there was, once you were dead, that that's it. It's lights out, it's game over. There's, there's nothing more after this. So you don't have to give an account after you're dead. Like live it up right now because this is all you have. He's saying no there will be a future accounting. He's reminding them of that. He's saying those believers that have passed will be raised again. They will, there will be a resurrection. That being addressed here, this verse in Peter and in Thessalonians, that, that common idea within their world of there not being a resurrection. We, we've Grown up in a world that's been shaped by Christianity, the thought of an afterlife is just commonplace for us. But it was not the same then. So this, you know, why would you give up your sinful pleasures if this is all there is? That's, again, some of that confusion that the unbelieving world would have gone through then. Like, why would you, why would you give up all these things that are so much fun? There's not even anything good after this. Peter's reaffirming there is a judgment to come, and those who receive the gospel and have died will live according to God in the Spirit. They will receive blessing. The coming judgment will be a good thing for those who believe in Jesus as Savior. And there's another phrase in there where he says, they are judged according to men in the flesh. You get this picture of everyone is guilty of sin against God, and therefore everyone experiences death inherited that from Adam. You judged according to men in regard to the body. You will experience death. So then what do we make of this passage? Right? In this passage, we have instructions from Peter on how to live as believers in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You are to be putting sin to death in your lives. There should be this 
this change that you see. Believers can say, I am no longer a slave to sin, but I am a slave to Christ. And we are to be desiring to glorify God with our lives. And this doesn't mean that as soon as you come to Christ, you will have immediate victory over all sin. But there should be, over time, as you look back at your life, say, oh, I see progress. I see the Lord working. I see a positive change. And he's saying here, even if we feel the pressure of a society around us that does not believe the gospel, the promise of a future judgment should inform the way we live, and it should encourage us to share the gospel with those around us. It's, like I mentioned, it should give you mercy for those who mock you. And if you are in Christ, you have been reconciled to God. You do not need to fear coming judgment. You should no longer be living to satisfy sinful desires, but rather living to satisfy God. And God reconciles believers to God because of Jesus. And because of Jesus, believers can say, I once was an enemy of God, and now he calls me friend can say, I am no longer a slave to sin because of Jesus. I am now a slave to righteousness. I am a slave to Jesus. My allegiances have changed. There should be, you can look back at your life and say, there is a change that has occurred, and I, I want to share that with you. I want you to be able to look back and say, there is a change that has happened. My life is different. It is much better. It is you may be giving up what you think are temporary pleasures, but you are gaining something far greater. That relation, a right relationship with God. Lord, I thank you for this passage. I thank you for the opportunity to, to work through it, to hopefully explain it in a way that we can better understand it and apply it. Help us to, to live in light of it, to to be desiring to put sin to death in our own lives to honor Christ. Help us to have mercy on those who don't believe to, to use us as motivation to share the, the good news of Jesus with them. In Jesus' name, amen. Living for Jesus takes constant reminder that he's calling us to give them our heart constantly. It's not easy for us. We uh, have had control of our heart for a long time. Even after we come to know the Lord, we still struggle with Him for that. Um, so we're going to turn to 564 where there's a song that sings, Give Me Thy Heart, sung from the Father, from the Savior, and from the idea of the Spirit, giving our heart to Him so that He can work in our lives. 564, let's stand and sing together. Give me thy heart, says the Father above. No gift so precious to him as our love. Softly he whispers wherever thou art. Gratefully trust me and give me thy heart. Give me thy heart. Give me thy heart. 
Hear the soft whisper wherever thou art. From this dark world he would draw thee apart. Speaking so tenderly, give me thy heart. Give me thy heart, says the Father of men. Calling in mercy again and again. Turn now from sin and from evil depart. Have I not died for thee? Give me thy heart. Give me thy heart. Give me thy heart. Soft whisper wherever thou art. From this dark world he would draw thee apart. Speaking so tenderly, give me thy heart. Give me thy heart, says the Spirit divine. All that thou hast to my keeping resign. Glad and abounding is mine to impart. Make full surrender and give me thy heart. Give me thy heart, give me thy heart. Soft whisper wherever thou art. From this dark world he would draw thee apart. Speaking so tenderly, give me thy heart. Gracious Father, we're grateful for your love, your constant friendship with us once we come to know you. That preciousness of knowing you are always involved in our life. Yet, Lord, the world would call at us and hamper us and try to get us to go back to our old ways, do our old things. To, Lord, not even be the kind of believer you want us to be. Willing to sacrifice our lives to live the way you desire us to live. Help us, Lord, to give us for us to give you our heart. Help us to think from that level that, Lord, whatever you're calling us to do, might we do it in a way that would bring glory and honor to you. For you can bless us in ways that we can't even imagine as we give our heart to you. We'll praise you for that in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.